Welcome to the VoxGig podcast. We talk to people in the developer community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. For more details, visit voxgig.com podcast. All right, let's get started. We have a special one today. Martin Woodward is the developer who registered Microsoft's first GitHub account. And he has been helping first Microsoft and then GitHub build, sustain, and support their respective open source communities. Of course, GitHub, where he now works, is the great granddaddy of developer relations, because that was kind of their business. We talk about practical things, like what recording systems to use for preparing your content. We talk about the impact of AI, especially for coding, and how it will improve tooling rather than take over the world. And we talk about the impact you can have in developer relations and how satisfying it can be to provide a ladder for those following you to climb in their careers. I found Martin, despite his high position, to be remarkably humble and very approachable. So he probably regret me saying this, but if you see him at a conference, go up and say hi. Alrighty, let's chat. Hey, Martin, Martin, it's great to have you here today on the Fireside with Fox Gig podcast. How are you doing? Good. I'm literally just in the door. I've just done a rather kind of uh, epic tour, it feels like nowadays. I was in uh, Brussels for FOSDEM, sort of went to Amsterdam, then over to Brussels, and then the train over to London for a different conference for um, State of Open conference, and then did that, and then just uh, flew over tonight back to my home just outside of sunny Belfast in a, in a field in the middle of rural Northern Ireland. So, yeah, Wonderful. that's where I am. Take a look at all the green, calm down a little bit. It's actually sunny outside at the time of recording. It won't be by the time of listening, <laughs> but yeah. Well, I'm at the other end, the other end of the country, and it's sunny here as well. Uh, yeah. Uh, this is the world of, of developer relations, uh, a lot of conferences. What's your average conferences per week? Oh, I don't. Um, so I don't do that many anymore in person. Um, so that last week was fairly unusual. Um, you know, a couple of week kind of thing in terms of like um, uh, sort of what the advocates would do and, uh, you know, in, uh, mixing things up. Um, but we actually um, on our team, we try and sort of limit the advocates um, to sort of um, one or two a month, ideally, in person, um, so that they're not spending all the time on the road, so they're able to do time with content creation, time with video, um, and time talking to the uh, the product managers in the business. Because the whole point of DevRel is, isn't about talking, that's marketing. The whole, <laughs> DevRel is about creating connections between the p developers that use the products and then the um, the people that make the products better. And if we're not doing that, uh, if we're not spending as equal, t uh, as equal time on that side, on building the channels, um, it's no good how big our networks are and how good our networks are if we can't connect them back to make the product better. So yeah, so we try and keep a focus and we don't want to burn people out as well. It's, hard, no. it's really hard work. Do you guys do much, uh, many virtual meetings? Yeah, yeah. We okay. slot those in a lot. Whenever whenever people need them, we, we can slot a virtual one in. Again, 
uh, that's one of the interesting things as well. So I'm um, a great believer in sort of growing advocates as well as like hiring people. Um, and so as you're trying to, you know, the, the advocates we've been growing over the past couple of years, they haven't done in person before. And so um, it's actually quite interesting kind of you've got an experienced advocate who's amazing and they're like and then you realize oh right this is you know you put them on a keynote stage in front of thousands of people and then you're oh no this is your first in-person conference okay sorry about that uh let me uh let me show you how you deal with stage fright and let me you know meet up you know you're going to start with like meetups exactly yeah but also it's um just yeah so this is the basics of that sort of thing but also the understanding that when you are doing an in-person conference you you need to be there the whole point is being there and making the connections and networking and like getting to know people and understanding people's pain points and all that sort of stuff and if you if you're used to doing virtuals you just in and out quite often you know when you you know you can you can you can back to back them almost but with an in-person conference you need to make sure you block a time out in your diary to actually be there and not have to run to a place to go record something or whatever so yeah it's just interesting it's interesting talking to people who've learned devrel during a pandemic like and helping them adjust to how it used to be a little bit more yeah and it is going back that way uh i, I want to talk about something yeah. just before we get into, into 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 the meat of the discussion we are using uh something called riverside.fm to record this uh on on your recommendation it's pretty cool yeah uh, it's a little bit different from a usual uh, tooling. Um, this is a the, the tooling around screen recording, doing demos, uh, doing virtual meetups, that type of stuff. Uh, what are your experiences with that? How did you end up with Riverside? What have you oh wow! Well, we use a bunch of tools. Yeah, so Riverside's great. Um, you know, n- not not sponsored by Riverside or whatever. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but the, um, so like, yeah, they're great. It's um, as from a, a as a personal point of view, anyway. It's a a great product. Um, they it's used by lots of like um, you know, you, you see it used a lot on broadcast TV and things like that now because it can um record video and audio give you separate channels and then if you if you're doing a screen share as well it'll give you that as a separate channel so we're actually recording this as a as a as a double header it's being recorded locally on both sides yeah and so then, does that as well right yeah 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 and then uploads it up so so that's but the, the, like riverside is kind of if you've done podcasts, then Zencast is a, an amazing product. Um, I should uh, for I'm I'm an investor in Zencaster on a personal level. So again, <laughs> disclosure. But um, um, Zencaster is an amazing product as well for like the audio side and kind of Riverside is like the audio video version of Zencaster. If you like Zencaster, again records a double header in a browser and then allows you to edit them together as you get there. So um, yeah, they're both great tools. Um, say the riverside allows you to do video but you can do audio too which is cool and screen sharing and then the other tool we use a lot is probably um streamyard um so streamyard allows you to kind of do live switching in the browser and then send it to twitch send it to youtube send it to linkedin um and you can configure or any random RMSTP, I think that's the protocol, like endpoints, video streaming endpoint. Um, so it's, it, it allows kind of 
somebody without a ton of video training, without a ton of video mm-hmm. knowledge to be able to switch and control a stream um, without having to have a full OBS setup and all that. Yeah, and OBS is like the full-on hardcore. Yeah, plus like very, quality can be variable depending on your connection bandwidth. Whereas if you're doing it in the browser, it's the it's the you know you don't have to worry about that so much because you're acting as a controller for the switcher rather than being where all the streams are coming together and then going back out again. Um, so yeah, so they're all tools. And then putting these like because that's great for capturing this, which yeah. is the the raw footage and i know you you know you keep yours as nice informal chats and so there's minimal editing kind of thing but there's times where you need to take a 45 minute rambling conversation with some dude from northern ireland and turn it into a story that you've got four minutes to tell maybe or two minutes to tell you know and so to do that kind of editing um to get to what what a video editor would call a paper cut um i use quite often use a tool called Descript, d-e-s-c-r-p-t it's okay. some missing vowels in there somewhere but it's a it's a, a that's an amazing amazing product that's um uses ai and you know so it does like um audio to text gives you a transcript of your video and then you edit by moving the text around so you cut and cut copy blocks of text move them where you need them and it creates you a video like it edits the video and it even does this it even does the like the dissolve very quickly it'll even like duck the audio properly like it's amazing it's just a really good paper cut it's not as good as what a professional editor can do but it's great for kind of quick boom 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 content that you want to get out the door which you need as a dev rel, right which you need as a dev rel. but then if you're also using it for like doing the fancy you know like when you see our keynote videos or when you see like customer case study videos and those sorts of things where you pay a professional editor to edit them you can actually ex- export from Descript uh, an adobe premiere timeline send that to your video editor and they can take the raw footage and the timeline and your paper cut and they've got the cut that they then can use and splice in some stock footage, splice in some B-roll. And before you know it, you've got movie grade like um, stuff and you were able to take a 45 minute conversation down to two to three minutes in, you know, a a few hours rather than a few days, which is what it can take normally. It it takes a long time to shrink something down. So. Oh, I know. I know. So that I mean, most people don't realize how expensive professional video editing is. If you get yeah. quoted, it's, um, it's not. Yeah, it's not cheap. Uh, no. and it is a specific. Um, okay, marvelous. Uh, we'll put in some links to those. Uh, yeah, that's, there we that, go. That, that... I should get some. I should get some commission and all that. But it's just you know we've used like every tool out there. We use. Because it's all about enabling content creation, not just for ourselves. Because as a as a dev advocacy team, like we've all been on Adobe Premiere training, you're like we can do that sort of thing because we've got the time to. But if you're trying to capture content with a PM on the team or with an engineer, you don't want them faffing on installing like video capture stuff. You know, you just want to give them the browser link and get the story out of them, and then be able to be able to tell. Or if you're getting the talking to a customer, and again, you want to turn that into a story. You want to you want easy for them to use, and then Streamyard's great because even a non-video professional can use it to, to get a decent stream out. So it's good for user groups and remote user groups that sort of thing. Well, it's, it's particularly useful for startups that are yeah. trying to get DevRel because they, they can't pay for Adobe training. So 
Yeah, well, and it's tools that, like, we can, which are accessible to all of us, you know. So these are the tools that, like, you know, like Riverside or whatever, like, I'm pretty sure I've noticed, you know, BBC and, like, major newscasting organisations. I don't know that they use it, but I'm pretty sure that they do, judging what I, you know, what yeah, I can yeah, sort of say. Yeah, yeah, yeah you'll like recognise it. Yeah, but you, once you've been on it, you'll think, oh, I know how they've created yeah, it. I know. Yeah. Uh, let's change let's change gears. So that was all super useful. We'll put in the links. Um you have a long and distinguished career of helping developers. Um let's talk about the .NET Foundation. Right. Setting that up and the history of that and all on making that something, I guess, that was more community oriented. Mm -hmm. uh, how that came about and the learnings from that. Yeah, so because uh, because this is an audio podcast, people can't see that I, I do have very little hair. I am old, and so uh, yeah, I've been around a while. So I, I was a dev. I was an engineer in dev tools. So I've been in doing dev tools since. Uh, well, I had a real job like until about two thousand and four. You know, in banks and, and insurance companies, that sort of thing, and then in consultancy, and then um, did a startup in two thousand and four which we um, sold to Microsoft. So that was like a developer tool startup. But it was all open source based and a bunch of stuff there. And then we sold it to Microsoft in 2009, November 2009. And it was just four of us, you know, well, five of us, sorry. Um, there, there were more lawyers that would turn up. There were more people, actually, that would turn up to take notes for the lawyers in the <laughs> room than we had people in our entire company. Um, but, yeah, so we did that. And then, um, but because of that experience, I had to learn kind of Microsoft's processes for dealing with open source, and which at the time in 2009 were pretty, uh, it was basically, how do we keep that out of our organization was the process. And that's how it was kind of structured. Yeah. Um, but they weren't playing on a level playing field because everybody, especially in the cloud services side, they were, you know, everybody who they were working with were building on top of open source and again, and were collaborating with open source communities. And so it was like helping them understand that. And then by about 2014, um, I'd been doing a lot of stuff, kind of helping the organize as part of my, so I had my day job, which was building products and dev tools and shipping those to customers um, as a PM and an uh, engineer and then a PM. And then uh, my sort of side project was helping Microsoft, like, understand open source and change how it worked with open source and rolling out training, rolling out tooling across the whole company to do that. Been slightly successful with that, I think. Well, it wasn't just me, you know, I was part of it, but there was a lot of us on this mission. Um, and so, you know, we all kind of found each other and like did different bits, but like things like I created Microsoft's GitHub account, you know, I um, looked, I was looking after CodePlex at the time, which was Microsoft's host, you know, yes, open source yeah. hosting solution. And, I'm afraid to say I'm the person responsible for explaining why this probably wasn't a good thing for the Microsoft community to be in its own kind of silo um, in and not to be exposing itself to the whole world of open source and why it would be better for the whole community and Microsoft for the community to be part of the global community, which was at that time was now clearly yeah. on GitHub. So um, so I was responsible for kind of gracefully shutting Clopex down and moving everybody over um, to uh, GitHub for open source. Was SourceForge still running at that time? SourceForge is still running today. Yeah, I, yes, in some, well. Yeah, <laughs> it is. If you want malware or whatever, but no, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's great. It's still uh, running today. It's still, yeah. I've still got open source projects on SourceForge. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I was really into that years and years ago. Um, yeah. I mean, do you have any insights into why, what happened? I mean, obviously it, it wasn't well tended um, and it wasn't a community focus, sure, right, on the surface. But GitHub seemed to come from nowhere. Was it driven just by Git being really interesting? What? what? Well, I think GitHub was, yeah, GitHub was driven. I mean, it was a very deliberate thing, but GitHub was driven by how hard Git was to host in some ways. You mm. know, Git as Git as it's uh, on its own. Um, there wasn't a very easy way of sharing Git repositories, you know, because Git, the source control system. So um, GitHub did two things. One, they made it easier to kind of share a Git repository with your friends. Um, but back then, it wasn't clear that Git was going to win either as as kind of like the source control system. you got to remember back in the 2000s, source control system was incredibly fragmented. You know, I like you got SVN, CVS, P- PVCS, but like they, they were, when you get that survey, there were hundreds of source control yeah, systems. Material, all that stuff. Yeah, like and people still use them all today. They're all still going today. There's just ninety odd percent of developers use Git now, but that wasn't the case. It was super fragmented. Um, so GitHub provided an easy place for people to kind of host Git repositories. Then what it did was it invented the pull request. So that's the ability to be able to say, "Hey, I want this Git." change um you person who's maintaining that open source library i'm going to take a fork of your git project very very easily very very quickly i'm going to make a change i'm going to push my change public so that everybody can see it in the world still so you're now not reliant on the person who's maintaining the repository to make a change you can just fork it go make a change and then send a pull request to that upstream project to say it would be cool if you accepted this change. But importantly, from a developer point of view, you're not introducing friction. You're, you're removing friction. You're, you're unblocking. You're allowing them to work and make their changes. But also, you're allowing them to connect it back into their upstream project. So is, is, is that the kind of killer feature? That is what the killer feature? Killer feature. Uh, Early on, it was forking and pull requests. Yeah. And then what it was, we, we talk about DevRel and the fact that I do DevRel at GitHub. In the early days, everybody did DevRel at GitHub. Like everybody in the company was doing DevRel because they, they all came from the community and they still do today. You know, so they all work with open source projects. They all work at, you know, they all hang out in user groups. <clears throat> and so it's not like um, there were, in the early days, there wasn't a need for a dedicated DevRel team because literally everybody in the company was doing it, whether they knew it or not. And it's only as the company got bigger that they kind of needed to create a DevRel team, you know what I mean, to kind of make sure that the whole organization was doing it still. So, yeah. It was unusual. I don't think they had early funding. I think they got really big. Yeah, they bootstrapped for until they got that Andreessen funding. I started. I didn't come over to GitHub until uh, the 2020, but I was working with GitHub very closely, obviously, especially with the Microsoft stuff from like yeah. 2012-ish. Um, and that was just after, I, I remember my first HQ um, was in San Francisco was when, um, like just after the Andreessen sort of funding and their first round of Andreessen funding had arrived up until that point, they were mostly bootstrapped because again, very developer focused, very in the community, very about serving those developers. Um, and so 
um, yeah, maybe that's it. Kind of grew naturally up until that point. That. I'm just trying to think of the timeline. So, I would have started using GitHub in anger, maybe 2011, 2012. Yeah, still pretty early. I mean, GitHub didn't come around until the first commit on the GitHub codebase was October seventeenth, two thousand and eight. Um, it didn't launch. If that's right, answer no twenty-five. No, uh, I'll. Uh, it would be in 2017, October 2017, and it would be April 2018 that they, sorry, April 2008 when they actually launched publicly. And then, um, you know, I mean, this it's been pretty um, fast growth since then. I did a blog post actually because we've just we've just crossed 100 million developers um, on on uh, GitHub. But I'm just trying to um, think now in terms of users. It was pretty, you know, it grew, it's grown exponentially, basically, since since 2009 in terms of, you know, where we're at until um, just a, a week or two ago as we were recording when there are now, um, you know, 100 million people actually on GitHub yeah, you know, doing true. stuff, which is crazy. Um, so, yeah. If GitHub goes down, the, the software development sort of stops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, it's Git, so people can run locally. But, yeah, yeah. it's definitely... Um, this... It doesn't go down much anymore, though, right? Microsoft must be... What's that, sorry? It doesn't go down as much anymore, right? Microsoft must have thrown in a few... It extra... goes down more often than we would like, but I'm glad you I'm glad you think it doesn't. Let's put oh, it that I'm, way. Isn't it? Yeah. I'm a daily user. I have noticed. Yeah, no, it's, it's different. It's rare that the whole thing goes down, let's put it that way, but different parts do because it's a, a distributed cloud service, and so you're always dealing with change. You're always dealing with issues and things, and, you know, DNS is always a problem, um, especially a global distributed service where you get ISPs that decide that they don't like a single project on GitHub, so we'll Thank take you. the whole site down and things like this. And so, yeah. you know, it's fun. It, it is keeping any large cloud service up at this scale. Like GitHub is amazing to work for because you get to have a lot of impact. You get like small things you do can make huge benefits to people's lives. But it's also a completely scary place to work at because small mistakes you make can have huge impacts on people's lives. And so, you know, it's kind of dealing with the scale of it can be can be sort of um, intimidating at times. But dealing with the level of impact you can have is just incredibly fun. You know, you can you can do so much good for the world. You can help new developers get into tech. Um, you can put down those ladders and bring people into new careers. You can help the people who've got established careers get even better. Like just the impact you can have in terms of productivity as well is amazing. So yeah, it's great. It's huge. It's huge. I think the thing that would scare me most if I was working as a developer in GitHub is the permission system. Okay. In what way? Is that wrong? You're exposing private source code to the wrong part. Yeah. Uh, that would keep me up at night. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Um, there is lots of sort of, yes. But you, um, if you're going to operate any system at scale, you want to make sure you put the appropriate safeguards in to allow your dev team to work quickly um, and within the safety rails and not do catastrophic things like that. You know what I mean? Um, like you need to make it be a fundamental failure of the system that anything like that could happen. Equally, even taking down a service or taking down a little bit of a service, you know, like it's not that developer's fault that they did that. 
unless they were extremely like went out of their way to kind of log into you know like get at production access log through several jump boxes and take things down it you should have the appropriate safeguards in the system to be able to slow those down which is why constantly as a devops like focused organization you are trying to improve and any issue that happens you're trying to learn well how can we make it because we're all fallible humans we all make mistakes so how can we make it so that those safeguards are in place and um yeah so it's trying to create like a this sort of and this is this is what's called by Gib as well. It's kind of like a, a blameless culture, you know, in terms of like it's very much oh that's interesting that somebody was able to do that. How can we make sure somebody wasn't able to do that? Because it might yeah. have been a junior developer that did it this time, but it could just as well be some fancy VP, especially the VP of DevRel, who does have the ability to make changes yeah. on GitHub.com and has made two. Like <laughs> you know, it's um, yeah, Oops. you want to put the safeguards in place to prevent to prevent everybody from making. Oh, I, I always yeah, I, I always tell my junior devs, you know, they, a lot of them are a bit burnt from previous work and they're quite yeah. scared of making mistakes. Yeah. I always tell them, don't worry, the scale of mistake you can make compared to me. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I I make the really big ones. Um, I think that's an interesting observation. Effective dev organizations have that. It's kind of like airline safety, where it's Okay, never mind the people. We need to understand the system mm. failure. Um, but I've experienced and worked with and uh, hired people from so many, I don't know if I'd use the word toxic, but just um, regressive organizations yeah. that don't really, don't really em- embrace the idea that it's the system that you need to fix. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I work. This, um, it's funny, I get asked to come in and talk about like, you know, like going and talk to customers about the future of development or the future of DevOps or one of those types of things quite a lot of the time because, you know, oh, you're GitHub, you must you must know what's going on. We're all just making up as we go along, but they, they think for some reason you, you've got particular insights. And um, the thing I always talk about is the fact that, like, the future of development, the future of DevOps is already here. It's just not it's just not evenly distributed yet, you know, like, uh, like William Gibson says. It's... <laughs> The level of maturity um, within the same company on some of these processes and practices and creating a culture of psychological safety and, you know, how to treat like engineering as a creative act and things like that. uh, um, And the reward structures are appropriate or all that stuff. Even within the same company, there's a huge degree of variability. So across the whole business, across the whole like globe, there's massive degrees of variability and, um, and levels of maturity. And, um, it's very easy, like, to assume, um, A, to assume that, you know, people are up there at the same level as you and everything and oh, everything we do is terrible and blah, blah, blah. But also you forget how far you've come. Um, and so it's to me, it's all about what little things can you do to make your organization just a little bit better today? What, what can you do tomorrow that will make the development practices inside your organization just a bit better and like do that every day, do that every week. And before you know it, um, you don't like you can't not ship features, ship features. But how do we make it just a bit easier to ship features every day? And those incremental changes just add up over over a decade and you get organizations transform. It just takes a lot longer than you think it's going to. Was that was that in the DNA of GitHub? Because I've seen organizations where it's the, in, the opposite. Right? <laughs> yeah. Every year it gets harder to ship code. Yeah, that seems to be the norm. 
I'll be, the DNA of GitHub is community. Yeah. So if you cut somebody open at GitHub, they would bleed open source. They would bleed the community and the developer community. I think the culture of I think the sort of the culture of GitHub has has had changes over the years as as it's grown. And I think every organization, as it gets an order of magnitude bigger, like changes in terms of how it does things. Um, but yes, I think nowadays it is very much a culture of like incremental improvements and not relying on any and hero engineers, you know, and um, like yeah, a mature, a more mature, bigger organization than it was. But I'm sure there were heroes back in the day. <laughs> there still are heroes today, but hopefully we've got like support structures around people so they those heroes don't burn out. But um making sure people can be career you know making sure people are community focused that's what kind of what definitely what the dna is of getting yeah. i have a personal question for you yeah this is something i'm struggling with and trying trying to understand where it fits in uh as as a developer first and foremost is uh copilot and chat gpt at mm-hmm. large language models and um what that means for the future of development? It's uh, a big open-ended question. My, my observation of the code that these things produce is that they they look like answers, sample answers to undergraduate programming assignments. Um, whereas day-to-day programming involves things like uh, spending half a day trying to configure AWS API gateway to make sure that cores works. Right? It doesn't help if you can generate twenty lines of code. That said. Um, Recently, I was I was writing Swagger documentation, and ChatGPT was super helpful generating mm-hmm. the examples, so I didn't have to spend longer reading the Swagger spec. So that was pretty cool. Have you used Copilot at all yet? Or I haven't used Copilot actually. No. Yeah. See, that's the thing is people um, assume. Well, there's two things. Um, sort of people. Yeah, I think when if you go ask somebody that's used Copilot, is like it it. The sort of the headline grabbing, go generate me a tweet thing that'll send, yeah. do sentiment analysis. Like, that's a good demo. One of the hardest things with Copilot is actually doing demos for two reasons. As a DevRel person who has to DevRel Copilot, um, one is it learns. And so you want to you wanna show, like, trying to demo something learning is insanely hard because you also want to practice. And, <laughs> and so you you do something, it learns as you're doing it. And you're like, great, here's an example of me showing you how it's learning from you by looking at my comments, looking at my intent, looking at the other code that's open in my editor and learning. Great. And then you do it a second time and it's learned. And so it's like, okay, that's annoying. So there's like little tricks you have to do to kind of trick it into relearning again. But it, it does learn and it does learn the way you want to do it. And it doesn't, like you, in practice, you don't, go use it for generating massive functions and formulas you typically use it to go how do i do this again and you sort of type a comment and it just does it or or you start typing it's like wow that's about that's literally what i was about to type and it just does that as well so um yeah yeah, it's that's good In in terms of creativity though back to what i said earlier i think people underestimate People who are non-developers underestimate the level of creativity there is in engineering and in problem solving Yes, that's the reason we do it. That's that is the, what gives us the dopamine rush, and that's what keeps us attached to being developers. And um, computers are not creative. Uh, we haven't done that, you know. And so um, 
Uh, I don't think we've anything to fear about, like from our jobs and things like that. Wise, but what it does do is take away a lot of the, um, like you said, a lot of kind of the mundane side, and allows you to be tons more productive than than you were. And so that's why generally the reaction from somebody who's had co-pilot is like, you cannot pry this thing from my hands, kind of thing. Like it's it just speeds me up so much. So yeah, that's what that's been my experience anyway. I need to. Um... I need to get an Emacs. <laughs> I need to get an Emacs package for it. There must be one. There is a um, Vim one. I don't know if you can bother be escaping from. I think is there Emacs. There's definitely a Vim plugin anyway. So uh, yeah. My first boss sat me down in front of a Sun terminal. Said, "This is the editor you're going to use." Didn't tell me. Right. Got, got stuck with the muscle memory six months later, and I, I've been able to. Uh, I've been unable to escape from Emacs land. <laughs> yeah, well, or you could switch on Emacs key bindings in VS Code. But yeah, you can you can uh, run it in a bunch of different editors as well. So yeah, it's all good. What about what about the scenario the the, the kind of no code scenario, right? Um, I'm, what I'm feeling here is that uh, you could use you could use this type of AI model to 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 generate the the underlying description of the no-code system. And if you extrapolate a bit further, you can use it to generate um, architecture definitions, right? So I want to build a, I want to build a, a, a zero system that does X, Y, Z, or an AWS system that does X, Y, Z. There's a standard approach. It spits out your 10 or 20 lambdas. You know, here's a, here's a classic microservice system that implements Twitter, something like that. Uh, is that going to happen? Those are all greenfield projects, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, put it this way. How many times do you go build greenfield projects like that as a developer? Right, exactly. And how many times do you go re-implement something that's already been done? It's yeah. very rare. Uh, because if it was already done, why aren't you already using it? Like, that's dumb to go build it again. Um, like, you know, in this sort of, there's a quadrant of kind of cost, value, complexity and things. And like where we live, we live at this as developers. Uh, I think it was Ken Schwab who said this. We live at like kind of like the the edge of chaos. You know, we are, we're doing highly complex things that are also, you know, using unproven technologies and very novel. Um, if we weren't, we would just go buy them. Like they would be commodity yeah, things. Yeah. We would just go buy a Riverside. We'd go buy a StreamYard or whatever. Um, so yes, it could probably do things that it can do things that are done a lot. For example, solve common programming problems or whatever. But that ain't what you normally do. Normally, what uh, you do is you go talk to customers and you think, oh wow, it would actually save you a thousand dollars a year if I was to move this button six pixels to the right. Like okay, let's do that. And you get that by having that understanding of the problem space and iterating and learning and again you know so yes so i'm personally i mean there are people a lot of applications that are written are crud apps around data records you know what i mean like look at the popularity of things like access back in the day look at the popularity of things like sharepoint and those sorts of things like an air table and things like these are systems that people go yes you can create like stuff which will allow you to do business things and like um microsoft are doing a load of like that sort of stuff i've been a lot very detached from that since i left microsoft went to github but um like they're doing a lot of stuff there for those kind of business apps and all that sort of side of things 
matter. Yeah, but a lot of the times there, it's again, it's common patterns. You don't even need AI. It's common patterns that you're theming up and like just in the records, really. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know that. I think what's actually more interesting with AI is we've got this uh, project. And get, if you go to um, GitHub Next, I'll send you a link for the show notes. But basically, um, we've got a project there called Brushes. And that's doing things like, hey, this bit of code I've got, comment it for me. Like, you're a computer that can turn comments into code. Let's do the inverse. Let's take some code I've had to like. And how often does this happen versus building something from scratch? Take some code I'm now the maintainer of that I've inherited uh, and haven't seen before. Explain to me what it does. Maybe reformat that code so it does exactly the same thing, but now it's a lot more readable. Like those are the sorts of things that AI is actually really, really well. AI, AI is just such a generic term. That oh, these yeah. machine, that these that these language models that understand programming languages and human languages, that's actually what they're astonishingly good at. And those are the sorts of things that I see like massive areas of productivity and stuff, rather than the. I I've been doing computing since the seventies, you know, well eighties, uh, but. Um, like we've always been thinking these 4GLs and blah, blah, blah are going to do all of our stuff. Like as long as I've been doing it, it's been there, but it's just not there yet. Yeah. Okay. So basically just feed uh, Martin Fowler's refactoring book into a large language model and <laughs> as, your, as your initial prompt and off you go. Yeah. Uh, like that stuff works, you know, yeah. that, that, that stuff you can do. So, Let's yeah. wrap up. Let's wrap up. Um, well, either, either we'll come back to or um, events finite, and there will be a point that discussion. Um, hang on, just take everyone will be pets. Um, let's turn back to Devro. Uh, final topic, uh, which is how do you lead in Devro? How do you define a team? Uh, how do you structure it? Do you use the community uh, kind of code content structure? Do you structure it in a different way? Do you look for specific people? Um, I guess it's a very open question, right? So yeah. running DevRel, if you were, if I was to sit down with you for a cup of coffee and say, oh yeah, I'm taking over DevRel in this uh, 20,000 person software organization, help, <laughs> what do I do? Um, needs to be focused on what the business is doing, uh, which just sounds dumb, but um, is people forget. So it's like, what is my business about? What does my business care about? And from that, you can use it to base a lot of your decisions. How am I helping my business succeed? Um, so GitHub's a developer company. It's easy for me. But also um, my audience are developers. I hire developers. That's great. Um, but then um, the thing again, where where is the company at? GitHub is a company that, fundamentally the whole organization understands community already and so and um there are 100 million developers out there with a github id like awareness is not github's problem which yeah. it usually is for most organization um what is github's problem is putting a human face in front of the company and especially a few years ago it was um a lot more googly in terms of like it was kind of anonymous it was it was plumbing it was infrastructure but nobody knew a person they didn't have their gal or their guy at github that they knew that could that, that could help them um and so 
for me, the job of DevRel at GitHub was actually to go make it so every developer feels like GitHub is a thing that they can talk with, and especially open source maintainers, and especially the most important open source maintainers, that they knew someone that they could reach out or they, they knew somebody who knew someone that we spread these wide networks where they were able to get their frustrations answered, get their feedback heard, get features that they really needed to do their jobs more successfully, get them built and that we actually cared. Um, so that's, that was what we did. And then to, to, to do that, organization structures in place you know we've got programs we've got advocacy uh we actually have docs and things like that and then the the sort of forums and things are maintained over it they're not part of the devrel team at github they're part of the sort of support team but there's that side of things um and yeah so it, it all depends on the structures already exist in the organization what the organization is already good at and then what can you do as a devrel professional coming in to solve the biggest pain points for that organization and allow the organization to scale. If your answer is go hire 30 advocates, you're always going to be told no. Um, and so it's how can you have the maximum bang for the book? So every every person you add to your team is adding a you know 10x, 20x in terms of what the organization as a whole can do in terms of scale. Does that make sense? Yeah, I've touched on an interesting point, but I haven't heard before. Uh, huh. Which is uh, allowing every developer that interfaces with you, right? So it's GitHub in your case, but yeah. whatever the organization, to say, oh, yeah, I briefly I asked a question of that DevRel at this conference, or I briefly interacted with them on Twitter, so that there's a human pathway to the organization, as opposed to, you know, go read the docs or try and pester people on Twitter to get an answer or. Yeah. It's about scale as well, though. Like, you need those things already to scale. GitHub well, already yeah. had those things. You know, like, most of the times with DevRel in a normal, like, again, when you have a real DevRel job rather than my fun one, you um, you are trying to help raise awareness amongst developers of your API, of your thing that does something that has a developer front, you know, interface to it that that developer interface is well understood and well used and well known. Like, so like, I don't want to underplay the awareness importance for most people. It's just, that wasn't GitHub's primary. No, problem. no. And I mean, you know, big. that might be set as an explicit goal and that's where yeah. we start. Yeah, but exactly. Me as a developer assessing a service. Yeah. I would often be in the situation of, of deciding which service to use for a client. I'm, yeah. I'm the one who commands. Uh, and that's about trust, isn't it? Often. Yeah. Do I know um, that I can get hold of people? Yeah. Right. And do they care? Yeah. And, it's, it's... And, and trust is lots of levels. We talked about availability. Like you need to be up as a platform or you lose trust. You need to be ethical as a company or you lose trust. You need to, you know, you need to um, be consistent in how you behave and you need to when you do deprecate services you need to do that in a responsible way that doesn't break trust you know otherwise you're going to lose <laughs> that, that advice is not being suggested by any recent events at all ever in any social media platforms that may have never existed. well it's but you can but it's interesting so you see things like that and you also you see things like um 
you know, like Eulers that go wrong or whatever. And I just sit back and think, oh, well, that's bad PMing. That's some PM that's not kind of stood up or or it's a leadership problem it's a culture problem because you've the pm that owns that area hasn't had the safety to be able to stand up and say hey this isn't is this the right thing for our customers or are we doing this because it's the right thing for us um and you've got to make sure that the customer you know that the yeah. developer is always at the center of these conversations really but it's easier said than done you know right safety takes courage because yeah especially if you've been in a leadership role you know you you the people reporting to you sometimes do really stupid things. You want to wring their neck, but whenever I've done that, I've regretted it very much. Yeah. Um, even like to... not even wringing of necks, but like it's scary. Just the impact asking questions can have sometimes, especially when like, I forget that like, you know, I forget I'm a big boss. You know what I mean? Like to some people who's like, you know, there's a couple of levels of reporting structure between me and the you know, like some IC sometimes. And I kind of just forget that. And then so you come in and ask a question or you kind of leave a bit, you leave a suggestion for next time. And you might mean it as a, don't worry about it, but here's a cool yeah. tip. Uh, but when that comes from the vice president of developer relations, blah, 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 it's like, oh, no, I'm in trouble. And so, like, I've had to learn, like, to, like, give my feedback appropriately as well and, you know, make sure I, like, especially if I want it to be gentle feedback, if it's kind of like, eh, maybe do it this way in the future kind of thing, then, like, give it, like, talk to their manager and have them deliver that feedback rather than it be me and stuff like that you know so yeah but it, it but you do because you do psychological safety and having that confidence to be able to do your best work that to me is kind of the most important thing to help sure your team is healthy and can keep growing um but people have to be safe to make mistakes and oh my goodness devrel is scary like, cause, like as a manager, you said talk about things that keep you up awake at night. Things that keep me up awake at night are people on my team, like either being vilified because they're, I'm I'm asking them to go be public. Um, so a them getting attacked, especially I hire a lot of people, you know, who are minorities. I hire a lot of um, you know people from diverse backgrounds. I do not want them to get attacked. Like that, that, that scares me. And the other thing that scares me is making sure I provide them with a safe structure so they have sufficient air cover because they will make mistakes. And so I need to make sure that the mistakes they make are in contained areas and that I keep them out of places that have got minefields that could do big mistakes, you know, that would, that would, you know, be bad. And they wouldn't be bad for them. They'd be bad for me because I'm the one that ultimately is responsible for everything that they say and everything that they do, you know. I think that's a wonderful, what, what do they call that? Servant leadership, isn't it? Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that, that is a high note to finish on. Um, the importance of safety when you're building the team, um, it always pays off. It's hard to do. Very it much. And it's a constant oh, struggle as well. It is. Martin, thank you. Um, Really, lots of. No, we didn't stick to the uh, plan topics at all, but I think uh, <laughs> I think it was much more interesting. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Take care. You can find the transcript of this podcast and any links mentioned on our podcast page at voxgig.com/podcast. Subscribe for weekly editions where we talk to the people who make the developer community work. For even more, read our newsletter. You can subscribe at voxgig.com slash newsletter, or follow our Twitter at voxgig. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.